Welcome to This Is What Raising a Feminist Looks Like, a podcast hosted by me, Leifa Singleton-Norton, about how families are using feminism to inform their parenting or how the political plays out in our personal lives. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, lands that were forcibly invaded and of which sovereignty has never been ceded. I would like to pay my respects to elders past, present and future. I would also like to pay respects to the elders of all First Nations lands this podcast is broadcast to. I would particularly like to acknowledge the strength of the women who've been raising children on and caring for this land as part of the longest continuing culture on earth for many thousands of years, and their resistance to racist policies, including those which are currently seeing more children removed from their families at greater rates now than ever, including during the stolen generations. It is the responsibility of all non-Indigenous people to listen to a diversity of Indigenous voices and reckon with our complicity in settler colonialism. This is ongoing work that we encourage of all our non-Indigenous supporters. In this episode, I'll be speaking with award-winning young adult author Ellie Marnie about her experiences raising four boys in regional Victoria. Our conversation took place right in the heart of the CBD in Melbourne, so thank you in advance for putting up with the trams, sirens and overall sound quality. Ellie and I chat about the isolating experience of motherhood in the Western context, the evolution of parenting at different stages of your children's lives, and how teenage boys' experiences are being changed by the spread of feminist concepts and much more. Now let's find out what raising a feminist looks like. This is what raising a feminist looks like. Ellie, can you tell me a bit about your family? What are we actually talking about when we talk about your family? Well, my family is me in a household full of five guys. I am. <laughs> that sounds like a lot it of sounds, testosterone. It is a lot of testosterone. Um, I'm still getting used to it. So it's me and my partner, who uh, he and I have been together for nearly 25 years. And then we have a nearly 18 year old, and a nearly 16 year old, and a nearly 13 year old, and a nearly 11 year old. There are a lot of birthdays coming. There are there's a lot of birthdays. <laughs> there's a lot of birthdays coming up really soon. But yeah, they they kind of have moved out of that baby stage now. Yeah. But so they're all kind of well, we've got at least three of them are um, well into teenager, you know, stage, and um, and one who's who's trying very hard to catch up with everybody else. Yeah. Um and and yeah, that's it. And we live out in the country, so we're not in an urban area either. We're kind of on a ten acre block, and yep. we're about twenty minutes away from our nearest township as well. So we're kind of a bit isolated, I guess, uh, yeah. in the middle of the sticks. Yeah. And, and have you always raised your family out there? Uh, yeah, we moved out towards uh, Castlemaine when um, our oldest son was about one. Did you grow up in the country or did you grow up? <laughs> I did. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. grew up in country Queensland. Yeah. Um, and then moved down to Melbourne in about 93, end of 93, started 94. Yeah. And um, and then promptly took off again for uh, living overseas. So I lived in Indonesia for a really long time. Yep. And also in Singapore and India for quite a long time. Wow. And then when we came, well, we came back in 2000 and I was pregnant with our first child and um, we had nothing. We just... We had no furniture, we had no car, we had been, you know, backpacking and, and well, basically living out of backpacks yeah. for, you know, the better part of five, five six years. So, yeah. 
different kind of adventure. Yeah, most yeah. definitely. So when you did come home, when you were uh, kind of preparing for that family stage of mm-hmm. your life, was feminism something you were comfortable with then? Was that something that you felt was important in your life? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I... Um, I was one of the first students to go through the University of Queensland Women's Studies program. Oh, so I was actually in the first year yeah. of that of that um, course of study. So it was the first year you could do a major in women's studies. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I did feminist literature and feminist philosophy at uni. Yeah. And um, and then of course I ended up having four sons, yeah. <laughs> which was pretty hilarious. I think there's some sort of karmic. I was just going to um, say, I think there is some kind, there. Of, yeah, <laughs> some kind of thing about, and it's something I'm particularly interested in, is is feminists who are raising sons because yeah. I don't know if you relate to this, but I say this quite a bit now, but, uh, you know, once I had a son, suddenly I realised that what I had thought of as like, oh, if I have boys, I guess that won't be so important. And all of a sudden I was like, you idiot. <laughs> what do you mean it won't Actually be really important? really important. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> And also, you know, you start to realise the divide between what works in theory and what works in practice. Oh, yes. You know, especially when you, when you, um, you know, the, the real where the rubber meets the road stuff, that can be really hard to negotiate and it can hard be, be really hard to negotiate like in an instant on the spot when yep. you have to make a snap decision, you know. So those are the areas I think that prove to be the most challenging to me. Yeah, for sure. So what was your experience like when you had your first and, you know, kind of relatively quickly afterwards had another one too yeah. and then another and another? Yeah. Um, did you think about feminism and motherhood? Was that uh, something you had thought about a lot or had, had, you know, kind of read about before that? I mean, I – well, yeah. I mean, look, feminism I think informed a lot of my choices but mm. in a really different way to what I expected. First of all, it, it – it influenced my birthing choices. Yeah. While I was at uni, I um, I did a really comprehensive study on childbirth and women's experiences of the medicalization of childbirth, and I interviewed a couple of women, and in, including my own mother. Oh wow! For the, for this article, for this essay, and realized that very little had changed in more than a decade for. You know, a lot of women who birthed gave birth in the seventies, and then mm. when the eighties came around, very little had improved. And I thought, well, stuff that I'm not, I'm not going to go that route. So I decided to home birth, and yeah. so I had four babies at home, which in the eighties would have been really unusual, yeah, because it's still <laughs> well, obviously I mean, no, now. I mean, I, I made my decision back then, yeah. but oh, I didn't get around to actually having the babies until my first son was born in two thousand. But oh, there you go. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit of it was a little bit of progress, but yeah. there was still um, a lot of emphasis on on uh, medical intervention and yeah. things like that that I I really was very wary of. I think because I had done that research and because I'd spoken to those women, um, yeah. and spoken to my mum about it. So that was that was so right from the get go. I think I sort of thought, oh yeah, you know, I'm putting my putting my theory into work here. Yeah. <laughs> And then, of course, when I uh, had spent a lot of time living overseas, I was living in West Sumatra. I was living in a rural area of West Sumatra. And I, I don't know if you know much about that area. I don't. That was where my partner's PhD research was focused. And the Minang people who live in that area of West Sumatra are 
one of the only two remaining matrilineal societies left in the world. So that was an incredible experience to be living in a community where women owned all the property and where the line of inheritance actually went through the women. So that in itself was amazing. And also, <laughs> I know, it was, it was really incredible place to live. Um, um, and we made a lot of friends there. We'd, um, my partner already had a lot of connections there before I arrived. But everybody lives in a very small area mm. and the women are constantly in each other's company. And, you know, so it used to be the case that the women in that community, when you married, your husband came and lived in your house with your mother. And so he came to his in-law's house yeah. to make the new family, you know, and they had a very big house and every each of the daughters had a, a room. Yeah. But that system's broken down somewhat, but there's still a system where the mother might live in one house and she'll have all of her daughters living in houses immediately around her and all her sisters will live immediately around them and, you know, so the women are just around each other all the time. And then I came back to Australia and I was pregnant with my first child and living in Hawthorne in an apartment there and I... I was, I finished my degree for my teaching degree and my partner was studying for his teaching degree and I realised that I was completely isolated mm. and I realised when I got back to Australia how isolated, you know, Australian women are in yeah. their own communities. Yeah. And they don't, you know, frequently you don't have any female relationships around you in your, you know, you don't have any relatives around you. Yeah. It was a real shock. It was a real shock to the system. Yeah. And I felt, I remember that first year when I was pregnant with my son, my oldest son, and that first year after he was born, before we left Melbourne and moved to the country. And I remember thinking, I've just, I, was, I had never been so lonely. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, come from a, I'd come from a place where I was just never alone, mm. you know, and I was always with other women. And then I came here and I thought, oh, you know, we talk a lot about feminism here in the West, but women are alone. They're completely isolated and on, on their own here. And it was yeah. really disappointing to me. Yeah. And, and really a real sort of slap in the face, like, oh, so Western feminism, how's that going for you? <laughs> you know? It's all on paper. It's, it's not all so on great. paper. Yeah. It's not so great yeah. in practice. Yeah, and I think that's probably a, a much more um, dramatic version of what a lot of women go through too because a lot of women leave the workforce, for example, yeah. at that point and may go from a place where they have, you know, maybe depending on where you work, less or more female friendships potentially, but certainly lots of human contact, lots of kind of social opportunity, even just, you know, someone asking how you are as you make a cup of Absolutely. tea in the kitchen. Absolutely. And then all of a sudden, yeah, you go home and it's just you and this baby and maybe it's the first time you've ever taken your foot off the pedal, yep. you know, in terms Absolutely. of your work and career too. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute, <laughs> what happened? And you're also going through this tectonic shift. And you have everything in your body is changing, yeah. everything, every aspect of your life and lifestyle is changing and you can understand why women start to question who they are as people and what the hell is going on and oh my god what have I done yeah absolutely. you know and and also I can understand why um that can produce issues like depression and stuff like that around yeah. around that huge change of life 
Um, because, yeah, it really feels, feels like you're being thrown in the deep end mm. and you, there's no one you can call on. My immediate extended family is, is up in Queensland still and also my partner's family, well, his parents were a bit older so, you know, it was hard to call on and they lived, you know, on the other side of Melbourne. Yeah. So I, I remember walking down the street with with my, my baby in, in like a... Pusher, a little push chair, yeah. and I used to just walk down the street just to go to the shop so I could talk to somebody yeah. during the day, you know. Yeah. And I was, it was just like, oh my god, I'm so lonely. This is so terrible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> oh look, I've left my matrilineal society and starting my own is not not going so well. And just now me the only on female contact I have is with the greengrocer's wife. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh man. That's huge, and especially with your family further away yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're all in different circumstances as to how much your family can be involved or whether you want them involved is always another question. Yeah, that's, that's an issue but, too. Yeah, even just having that option or not having yeah. that option is huge. That's Did right. you start to find community when you moved back out to the country? Yeah, look, I think I started to make connections out in the country when we moved out towards Castlemaine. And I think women out there do seek each other out more because there is that understanding that, well, you're really out there on your own, mm. you know, and um, you do need to make those connections. Somehow in the city it's like we've forgotten that people still need those connections. Um whether they're surrounded by even though they're surrounded by people, that doesn't necessarily mean they've got a community, you know, supporting them. Whereas out in the country, I think people are more aware that, yeah, you actually have to make an effort to to forge those connections. Yeah, and I think on some level too, it's a safety thing, like for bushfire and also, you know, it's kind of like a country women's association type thing <laughs> yeah. as well. Is that women kind of um, connect with one another and try to support one another? So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I did. I, I made contact with other women who were, you know, starting a mother's group. Uh, there was a group of women who were uh, actually starting to um, get together and talk about birthing issues in the district. So that was something I kind of got involved with. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, and then, I, and then, of course, you know, you form more connections when your children start school yeah. or when they start kinder or whatever. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of what happened. Yeah, but it sounds like you connected with women who had similar political issues and ideas as yeah. you did, if you're saying through yeah. issues. I'm assuming they were people who were, you know, advocating for women's rights with birth. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, and Castlemaine's kind of an odd spot too. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's – I was – somebody told me that um, Castlemaine has the highest number of women PhDs in the whole country. Oh, go Castlemaine. <laughs> I wonder if so it's I think it's a bit – no. <laughs> So I think it's a bit of an odd, you know, it's a bit of an outlier as yeah. far as the graphs go. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there are a lot of there are a lot of people there who are who are kind of um, like minded, I guess. Yeah. And I also think uh, I toughened up a bit too. Mm. So I think there was there's a sort there's a sort of um, feeling like oh, you know, you just have to get a tougher skin, and to some extent, you know, well, you're kind of forced to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in that first year or so of your, your children's lives. Yeah. Um, where you are kind of coping alone or coping in an isolated situation, whether you're in the city or in the country. Yeah. And so those early years at home with your kids, we talked about definitely birthing <laughs> being one of those political flashpoints for yeah. you. Were there others? Were there other things where you started to think, 
okay, there was all that research that I did, studied <laughs> all of this, I've done it hard, and now did you have like an idea when you were going in about this is how feminist parenting would be or this is what a feminist mother does or did you kind of go into it thinking, well, who knows? Ah, oh, that's really, that's an interesting question. I think I had some preconceived ideas about how I was going to parent but I think to some extent they were less formed than my ideas about um, birthing and yeah. early child, you know, early child rearing from mm. from infancy. I guess mm. I knew I knew that I wanted to do something different to what my parents had done. So yeah. isn't that that's, that's a, a that's a really choice. common <laughs> that's a really common thing? Yeah, is I wanted to have a slightly different approach. I mean, some of the, I wanted to cherry pick a bit from you know the kinds of things that my parents had done, stuff that I'd read in books. And that cherry-picking approach, uh, I think it serves you okay, but you really do feel like you're making it up on the fly. Yeah. So I, I didn't feel like I had a huge resource of women who I could emulate, mm. I guess. You know, yeah. I, I, and I think, you know, I don't know, I think maybe that's true for everybody because everyone wants to do it their own way. Yeah, true. But no. I think that it can be easier now to find a bit more information. I feel like there's there's been, you know, maybe in the last five, ten years, there's been a bit more of a, a push forward in some of the local literature or the local, yeah, you yeah. know, kind of stories that you can reach out to or communities, whereas other than quite academic-focused oh, work, yeah. I I struggle to think about, you know, kind of any anything older than that that I've really found kind of helped me, yep. yeah, see yeah. where I wanted to go. I mean, I, th- I mean, as far as resources and reading goes, I think it's almost like there's an oversupply. Mm. Oh yeah, you know, I mean, and that can be really confusing. Mm. I, I think it's, it's, it is really, and it's also something too that if you, if you're partnered, you know, you're negotiating that with their idea of what yes. parenting is oh, like and yes. what is good parenting for them, which is so complicated. Oh yeah, so you're negotiating it on a lot of different levels. Yeah. You know, it's it's you, it's your experience with your own parents, it's what you've read, what you understand is is a good idea. It's what you it's what your partner thinks. You know, it's it starts yeah. to get quite complicated. All I knew was that I I wanted to be a bit more open-minded, I guess, than my parents had been. I I didn't want to uh, enforce all of the same boundaries that my parents had. And also I grew up with sisters and I only had one brother and he was born basically when I was in my teens. So I didn't really feel like I knew a lot about raising boys. Yeah. <laughs> And I really felt like I was kind of making that up yeah. as I went along. And I, I learned an awful lot about conventional male patterns of behaviour, I guess, just yeah. by I, I was just had to kind of read up on it and observe and talk to my partner and talk to other men that I knew and try and get a bit of feedback on it and try and figure out a strategy that way. Yeah. So that was... It's been really interesting and I'm still learning all the time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. What do you think were the kind of early bits where you thought, oh, no, I'm going to have to figure this out? What kind of things cropped up that you felt were particular to raising boys that you maybe didn't feel like you instinctively <laughs> had right there for you? I didn't instinctively feel like I had a handle on gun games. Oh, yes. Oh, <laughs> yes. 
I mean, seriously, we had discussions about this, my partner and I. Are we going to give them toys that look like guns? Are we going to, you know, are we going to give them, like, even stuff like um, water pistols, you yep. know, all that sort of stuff? Are we going to – and there were all of these, you know, we we sent our kids, ended up sending our kids to a Steiner school. Yeah. And they have, you know, some strictures around what sort of toys and games they play in the schoolyard as well. So they don't have any guns allowed in the schoolyard, but they – they have like swords and yeah. you know bows and arrows and that sort of thing. Yeah, which we thought was a pretty good compromise. Yeah, and we thought, oh yeah, you know, we'll, we'll sounds great. Sounds good. Little wooden yeah. swords. Yeah, and then we just realised that they were just using sticks mm. as guns, yeah. and that they were making the you know the gestures Finger. with their fingers yeah. and pointing their fingers at each other, and going bang, 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 and it was just like, oh my god. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Found How do we get rid of this? Yeah. We're right in the middle of that now with an eight-year-old. Yep. Uh, and I like the ways yep. that they get yep. around yep. it, though. The eight-year-old is pretty inventive. good. He's like pointing something over there. Don't point that at me. Like you're pointing a gun. It's a rainbow gun. Oh, oh yeah, right. Oh, great, great. <laughs> Thanks for the rainbow gun, buddy. Yep. Yeah. Thanks it's for a, that. It, it is amazing. They'll become very inventive to yeah. find themselves a gun. I know. And it really threw me at first. And yeah. so, you know, after a while we were just like, this is ridiculous. We're banning this and but they and they know about it and they're still playing it. And they're, yeah. and they're making these ridiculous constructions <laughs> ethical philosophical constructions yeah you know so um after a while i think we just kind of slowly it started to seep back in and then um and then i think we realized that we were going to adopt a similar strategy to the strategy that we tended to adopt with tv and screens which is that we use it but we have really defined limits about you know how much time you can spend with it how much you're allowed to spend playing on screens or how how often you can use a thing. Yeah. And that eventually they start to use it as a as a just another it's just another implement. Yeah. You know, it's just another tool or another toy, one that they can pick up and put down. Yeah. Or switch on or switch off. You know? Yeah. The switching off thing is oftentimes less of an issue when they do have more space to explore it to yeah. something that we have figured out. Yeah, slowly. <laughs> it takes a while to it figure it out. It does. Yeah. But I had a friend who grew up in a commune situation oh. and she didn't have TV until she was 14. Yeah. And I remember when I would visit her and if the TV was on, that was it. Yeah. She was, she had absolutely no concentration. She just couldn't not look at the TV. Yeah. And it was because she'd never really. It had never become normalised for her, yep. you know, and it was still a real novelty for her, even yeah. when she was in her 30s. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was still like, oh, wow, the TV. And yeah. I was like, you know, that's an ad, right? <laughs> <laughs> Ads is another funny thing too because we watch so much streaming or offer media oh, server yeah. at home. Our kids don't see adds that much and the eight-year-old in particular is absolutely fascinated by them. Yes. He's like, hey, look, guys, they found can, the perfect solution to this. Yeah. You know, we can buy this. Did you yeah. know that yeah. you can buy this? Yeah. And, and like, did you know yeah. it's the best fry pan? <laughs> is it really? <laughs> yes, they told me so. Oh, it no. really is, you know. I'm like, uh-oh, we're going to have to work on the media literacy. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we spent a bit of time uh, watching the Gruen transfer with yes. our kids since they turned into teenagers. Thank God for that. That and was really check useful. Out. Be good too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
There's a hot tip there. Yeah, yeah, that is a good tip. I'm going to save it up. But then he'll be like, what ad? What is this? This yeah. is how many years? Yeah, we'll get there. yeah so um, what yeah. other things? Uh, look, you know, there's, there's a range of things that I still find that I don't have any reference points as as a female. Yeah. In a, in, and I, I find it very hard to figure out how to negotiate it and it's got nothing to do with the fact that I don't know about it it's it's because I've just never experienced it and I don't understand it mm. on a on a really base kind of cultural level yeah uh, and the best example would be the argument that I had on Friday with my partner and my two older sons who um, were sledging me about something and, you know, I'm kind of used to the idea of sledging and I'm used to a certain level of sledging. Yeah. But I I am still completely uncomfortable with how it works and yeah. also can't fathom how guys can sledge each other and then just completely brush it off without any kind of, you know, it was like, yeah. yeah, and they were like sledging me and I didn't realise they were sledging. Yeah. I thought they were actually criticizing me and after they left and they were all jolly and laughing and I kind of laughed too and then afterwards I got really upset yeah and I wrote them this long ranty message text message and said you know you really hurt my feelings when you did that and they were all like oh my god no we didn't mean that at all that if we had thought that you would take it personally we would never have said it and I was just like how do you tell the difference yeah. oh no I can't <laughs> figure it out where's the guidebook where is the freaking guidebook yeah. and I was like I got really upset and I was like stewing about it all day and then finally they just said oh my god we would you know we're so sorry yeah we really really apologize we didn't know that you were going to take it so personally, this is not something we anticipated at all. Yeah. So there's some there's some cultural divide things yeah. there. Yeah. About you know? the different ways, the gendered ways that the that gendered ways we that can, people yeah, relate. communicate. Yeah. yeah. And, and of course, generationally, as it always is too. Yeah. I don't know. Too. I don't know whether boys were sledging in the same way when we were growing up. I think they know. were. I have to do a study. Particularly, yeah. like, and you know, it's to do with the way the the gendered way men relate, particularly around sport. Yeah. You know, I mean, I yeah. think that starts there and I think that's where um, I think that's where a lot of it kind of is figured out. Mm. Is um, sport big in your house? It's really big. Yeah. And, you know, that was something that my partner and I talked about in the beginning and I sort of said, oh, I really, you know, it's it's such a full-on kind of guy's culture. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I really want the boys to be, you know, in with that. Yeah. Because it can get really toxic. Very and my partner said, you know, look, this is this is their, you know, this is part of male culture and they need to know about it even mm. if they choose not to participate in it at some point in their life. You know, I mean, he played football for a long time and then I think he finished when he was like about 16 or 17. But that was kind of like enough to inoculate him so he, he understood the rules, you know, yeah. and and he could play the – he could play the – the game of, of how, the social game, I guess, yeah, on that level. And he sort of said, you know, it's actually really important, particularly in the country, yeah. you know, for men to have these connections with other men. And sport yeah. is one of the ways that they do that. And, and in fact, 
they they do need to know how to interact in this way. Mm. So and whether, so much of boys' relationships are mediated through absolutely. activities, aren't absolutely. they? Absolutely. Sport or otherwise. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And their physical level of physical activity is, is huge. Yeah. Which was something I sort of thought, oh, yeah, okay, testosterone yep. is a thing. And then I realised particularly now that, you know, as they got towards teenage years, towards their teenage years, I realised, like, how long it becomes. Like, yeah. You know, they just have to expend energy. Yeah. And how do they feel about or what's it been like watching them navigate those worlds, as you say, where we, we really yeah. do think about the idea of the, the toxicity that yeah. may be associated yeah. to those sports? How's that been? I think it's been mediated in our situation to some extent by the fact that we're living in a community that's very tolerant. Yeah. If we were living in, you know, like rural country Queensland, I yeah. think maybe the situation would be different, yeah. you know. But, you know, they all play football, yeah. for instance. Football is kind of like the great leveller. Yeah. So everybody plays footy. Uh, they all really enjoy playing footy. Mm. Um, some of them are into it, to, you know, a lot, and some of them really just kind of like to like to play. Yeah. Some of them are really competitive, and some of them just aren't. They just yep. kind of like to kick around. Going along. Yep. Yep. But it has meant that they have made those connections socially, so that when they go to the high school, they know other guys from the footy club, and you know, so yep. that's been good. But then I have one boy who's who plays football. And does gymnastics and also also dances ballet, does oh, classical wow. ballet, and so he's kind of managed to somehow, yeah, <laughs> negotiate a place where you know his ballet is just as much accepted as all of his other sports. Yeah. So. And was that a struggle at first? Is that something he's had to work at, or was that something I don't where think it's he, just fallen? I think he just yeah, it's just just happened. Yeah. And I think um, he started really young. Yeah. So he started when he was seven just out of interest. Yeah. And he was like, oh, I want to do dance. And I was like, okay. And I said, oh, do you want to do like, do you want to do like movement, like mm. like creative dance? You know, yeah. he said, no, I want to do classical ballet. Like he chose, that's what he chose. Yeah. So I was like, okay. And I was all for it and, and thought, okay, see how it goes. And if it lasts, and it's lasted for five years now. And, yeah. And that's just another sporting activity now. Yeah. So... Yeah, but I don't know if he would have that same level of acceptance if he was in another town or even in another state. I mean, I'm interested to see what sort of decisions he comes to as he gets older too. You know, he's only mm. 12. Yeah. And they don't start really taking things seriously until they hit about 14. So yeah, I guess we'll see how it all goes. Yeah, but those gendered norms are, are in place very early. So yeah, he's really. still, like at 12 still finding that that's, you know, yeah. not something he's letting get on top of him. That's brilliant. It doesn't seem to bother him. Yeah. And, I mean, more to the point, uh, no one really says anything about it. Yeah. So, and, look, there are a few examples out there too, you know, of football players who also engage in dance or gymnastics or, or God forbid, have, you know, academic careers and stuff like that as yeah. well. So, you yeah. know, I think that – I think there's something to be said – for that, that yeah. there's a certain number of role models out there in the real world. I yeah. think that does count for something. Yeah, that's huge. And to have accepting males, uh, older males around yeah. as well, who are just like, oh, yeah, you know, it's just another thing that you do. Yeah, for that, sure. He has that in the community, so that's really good. 
So with the four boys, you, you've talked about them and obviously they're four different kids. They're going to be very different. Yes. Um, but when you look at the kind of gendered expectations we have of boys, is that something that any of them struggle with, do you think? Or do they, do they have a kind of a, a more expansive view of what it means to be a boy? I don't know. I feel like they're still evolving. Mm. I still, uh, you know, like I don't really feel like I can speak for them. Yeah, and I also don't feel like they're fully understanding of where they're at yet. I think they think of me as like an honorary guy, yeah, <laughs> um, which does complicate things. I think to some extent, yeah, because I have to occasionally insist that you know certain standards of behaviour or certain types of language or you know certain things that I have an expectation that they need to meet them and. Yeah. And sometimes there's a bit of pushback on that. But we try to keep open channels of communication as much as possible. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really the key for me. I mean, is that, you know, they were, they were so tight with me when they were little. Yeah. And, and then as they've gotten older, my feeling is more and more that I am just kind of releasing them a little bit at a time. Yeah. And... To some extent, their involvement with their father has become, you know, taken on greater importance as mm. they've turned as they've begun turning into young men, because obviously they're looking for someone to model yeah. their, their behaviour on. Do you think that's something he thinks about a lot? I think he does. Yeah, yeah. he's incredibly involved with them. Yeah, like he's done an amazing job with them. Like, and. He's aware of the conflicts as as well as I am. You know, like he, he comes from a very in, in intellectual um, academic background and stuff like that. But he also played footy and did a lot of and did a lot of um, sport and that yeah. sort of stuff. So he's he's kind of trying to model that kind of yeah, I guess that's what the kind of model he's he's trying to be with. Yeah. Him. That you don't have to be one dimensional. Yeah. You can have all of these different interests yeah. and yeah. And also, you know, they talk with him a lot, which is really good. Yeah. And I know that there's lots of stuff that they talk with him about that they, they don't talk to me about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I mean, I think that's my job at the moment is to kind of to make sure that while they know that they can come to me if they have concerns or questions, um, you know, that um, I'm, I'm quite happy if they go and talk to their father about that. Or yeah. to another adult male who they think they might need to uh, ask a question of, um, yeah. And that I, I'm there to kind of uh, midwife that process. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. 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 But yeah, they still do come and talk to me about things, and and I think that one of the great joys of my life at the moment is sitting in the car with them when I'm yeah. driving them places and yeah. some complex. <laughs> Naughty philosophical problem will come up, and we'll we'll just start talking about it in the car. Yeah, lucky you live in the country. It's yeah, time for driving. <laughs> time for normal guide. We do a lot of driving. Yeah, I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah, and now my oldest son is driving too, so he drives, and I have to sit in the passenger seat. So we're still we're still talking. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's the main thing is that we're still talking. I'm kind of hoping that that's what they always will feel like that, you know, they don't have to talk to me about everything but that I'm mm. always here to talk if they if they need to. Mm. So. 
You were saying before, I thought it was really interesting, you were talking about you know, some of the challenges, and this is true of parenting generally, obviously, not just when we talk about the combination of your personal politics and your parenting, mm. that you're kind of making it up on the fly or that you oh, have to, yeah. all of a sudden it's like, oh, I haven't studied for this. Like, <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute, let me do some reading and then I'll get back to you with my answer. And unfortunately oh. that never quite works. But how how do you find yourself in those positions? What do you kind of think about? You were talking about I don't necessarily want to parent the way that my parents did. But how do you kind of oh boy. feel for what's right for you? How do you get a feel for it? Yeah. yeah, I don't know. That would be the short answer. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I really uh, sometimes regret some of the decisions that I make mm. that like snap decisions, you know, and sometimes you're just in that position where you have to make a snap decision and you make the wrong one, you know. Yeah. I try not to beat myself up about that too much. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of decisions that have to get made every day. Every day, oh my god! And yeah, I mean, and it doesn't matter too whether or not you've got four, or whether you've got you know one, um, or whether you've you know they've all left home. You're still making decisions, yeah. And I don't think that ever changes. You sometimes you sort of I try to consult as much as possible. Mm. You know, I think that has always seemed to serve us well. That my partner and I consult. If we can, yep. if we're both in the same room and it's like, oh, mum and dad, can I do this? And then we're like, can you give us five minutes to talk about it? And then we'll get back to you. Yeah. Otherwise, if we're not there, then I just try to sort of think, well, what would be the thing that would probably work the best for everybody and for yep. the family? Yeah. There's a lot of people to juggle in terms of who you're taking into account when you're making decisions yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Just a few. <laughs> um, and so when you think about the way that feminism is within your family at the moment, how do you feel in your relationship to as a woman raising four sons? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think the kind of feminist well, – I don't want to use the word battlegrounds because that makes it sound like it's always combative, but, you know, what yeah, are the kind yeah. of feminist things that you're – What are the flashpoints? Think about? Yeah. Uh, what are the flashpoints at the moment? Talking about uh, language, language can be a flashpoint at the yep. moment. You know, that kind of casual misogynistic language, which yep. is really easy to fall into day-to-day use, which I pull up every time. Yep. And, or will try, you know, if I hear it, I'll pull it up. Yeah. I just don't want to, them to get into the habit of using that kind of language and I want them to be aware of the fact that even if they're going to use it, someone's going to get offended by it and eventually they're going to get caught out, Yeah, you know, and I may as well be the one catching them out. Mm. And trying to explain where it sits on a continuum of behaviour is really mm-hmm. hard because it's like, yep. well, it's just, you know, well, it's just a it's word. Just a word. Yeah, yeah, you know, and yeah. everyone uses it. And yeah. it's like, yeah, well, no, I don't, don't. Want, I don't want you to use it. And, yeah. you know, you're turning into a grown person now and you should have a level of discernment about what's appropriate language to use in what situation and yeah I would prefer that you didn't use it in any situation but this is in this situation around me you don't use it <laughs> yeah yeah context is key half yeah the time. yeah that's right yeah I'm yeah. um, trying to develop that discernment in them too about what they not what they can and can't say but are they asking the right questions at the right time. Yeah. Just to make them aware of the fact that what they're saying or what they're asking or what they're doing may not be that acceptable to Mm. everybody. Yeah. But that's something that starts when they're little, you know. Yeah. 
right through to kids pointing at people in supermarkets and saying things that you don't want them to say and, you know, and then when they become teenagers then they start making all these off-the-cuff comments and then you've got to, you know, you have to kind of police that a bit. Yeah. We spend a bit of time talking about issues around negotiation, negotiating relationships yeah. and consent. Yeah. And I think that's really important that we talk about that. Mm. And how I easy mean, is it to talk with teenage boys about that? Do you think <laughs> they have? They, they don't of, want to talk to me about it. God surprise. knows. Yeah. Because, you know, a lot of that has been stuff that they want to talk about with their father. Yep. And I'm kind of like, okay, yeah, but you realise that at some point you're going to be relating to a real live other person <laughs> yep. who might not be a guy yep. and maybe you want to talk to another person who is not, not a guy, guy. <laughs> to get a perspective on what they think about it. Yeah. So, um, so that's been good. We've done a bit of talking about that. Yeah. You know, uh, I think... There's been some discussion about confusion around relationships and roles mm. and uh, I think that's understandable in yeah. the kind of cultural climate and the social um, climate that we're in now. Mm. Um, there's also a certain reluctance, I think, on the part of teenage girls to provide a lot of information mainly because they probably are still working it out for themselves yeah and also there's been some of them have sort of said well it's not my job to kind of educate you you mm. know you go and find that out for yourself and then they're kind of like well how the hell am I supposed to know and I'm like well you can always come to me and ask yeah if you're not sure yeah but it's hard, isn't it, when just as much really as girls hard. are trying to find their feet and figure their way forward. For boys, that's also a process. Yeah. And they're that's also right. dealing with what, you know, what those kind of conflicting ideas of what being a boy or then yeah. growing into a man, even more complicated, that's right. is out there. Like a lot of what we talk about maybe in the home is not necessarily reflected by popular culture that's or, right. you know, the kinds of things that we think are great examples and maybe there's steps missing in between that they're not necessarily seen. Like, okay, if you if you want to turn into this kind of man, what does that look like when what you're does a teenager? Like and you're, teenager? Yeah, you're awkward. And What's the process it's of already, getting there? Yeah, yeah and that's already know. excruciating just to be in the world when you're a teenager I and know. that's certainly how I felt anyway. And look, to some extent I think my role is to allay a certain amount of resentment that they might feel towards young women mm. who they feel that they can't communicate with mm. or who are kind of they are already intimidated by mm. and then when they stuff up then they kind of get berated I think they've experienced that mm. you know at different times and then they kind of start to feel resentful and and it's kind of my job to sort of say well look hey that's mm. there's a reason why that yeah. happened and can I explain it to you, you know, in a way yeah. that, you know, you kind of have to take everyone's feelings into account. But yeah. you also have to be honest and sort of say, well, look, you know, misogyny and sexism has been a long, it's been a really long road and we're not there yet and there's still a long way to go and yeah. everyone's still figuring it out as they go. Mm. So, you know, we'll try and cut you a break if you try and, cut, <laughs> if you try and meet us halfway. Yeah. You know, you have to... Yeah, and I think it, um, I imagine it would be hard for boys at that age too to have the kind of structural context. So they don't have it. Yeah, you know. you know, this is one instance, and this happened with this girl, and I wasn't 
so that's right. you know mean to her I that's you know right. I wasn't trying to do whatever yeah and to be able to put that in the context that for that girl that's this ongoing battle of that's her right. life almost and know? they don't they don't yeah. get that context yeah. they don't understand that at all yeah and so trying to frame it for them in those sorts of terms yeah. you know involves quite a bit of explanation and sometimes sometimes they're there for it sometimes they're you know, you, you hope they're receptive and sometimes mm. they don't understand or they're not kind of conceptually ready for it. Yeah. I, I just try and be as available as I can to talk about stuff like that. Yeah. I can see I'll be doing a, a lot of talking about that. And yeah. having a group of them at home also I think is helpful in that they they do start to educate each other in some ways. Yeah. So that's, that's handy. That's been good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like so, you're co-opting them for the workload. Yeah. Okay, finally it pays off. That it's like, okay, it. now I'm going to tell you. You know, you spread it, amongst your, spread it amongst the rest of them. Put it on whatever notice board you have. Yeah, and I wish we did have a notice board. Maybe yeah. I'll take that yeah. off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and look, the other thing is um, I, you know, I, I mean, I try to compartmentalize my working life and mm. my home life to some extent but I also sort of think the kind of work that I do as a writer is is home-based and, mm. and to some extent it's impossible to compartmentalize it yeah it's it's hard to avoid some of my work bleeding into mm. into my life but surely that's a good example for them in a lot of ways too. I think so. I hope so. Yeah. I hope they don't feel like they just see me working all the time. Yeah. You know, that's my concern. Yeah. Uh, is that mum just is kind of constantly on her computer or constantly, you know, occupied with other things. Yeah. I feel like I'm I'm kind of juggling a lot. Yeah. But, yeah, I think it's better for them to see that I'm working and that I'm contributing to the household. Right? Yeah. And that, and that I have my own kind of vocation yeah. I guess than having me just kind of being available constantly and just picking up after them all yeah. the time yeah. and you know I mean that's I think I'm more than that and yeah. I'd like to see them see me as more than that yeah out of curiosity do they read your books because <laughs> um, I think you write male characters incredibly well surprise surprise girl, having you. so many of them around you but I wonder what they think when they read your books as well um I think they're a bit scared. I think my two older boys read the first book that I wrote and then after that they were like, ah, oh, this book has a lot of kissing in it and I don't know if I want to read a book that my mum wrote that has kissing in it. And I was like, okay, that sounds fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> I think they will probably come back to them later. Yeah, you know, when kissing is not so excruciating. When kissing is yeah. not so excruciating. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not so on for them but yeah. I think yeah they they get excited about about the books that I'm releasing so that's nice that is really good. nice yeah how do you feel about those kind of I mean one of my most hated phrases is the idea of having it all oh um, god let's not even go there <laughs> but just in terms of the the you know the kind of relationship you have as you said um, to working particularly out of the home yeah. um, and balancing motherhood. Not how do you do it all, but more, you know, is that attention or is there anyone it isn't attention for is probably a better question, I is guess. Is there anyone it isn't attention for? Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't know anyone, I don't know any woman writer who doesn't feel that tension, you know, mm. any woman writer who doesn't feel that tension and it's exac- exacerbated when you're a mother. Yeah. And like I wrote this thing on Twitter that was just 
it was just about what it's like being a writer who's also a mother and mm. it was just a tweet thread of all the things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it was just kind of a dumb list in a lot of ways and it just absolutely blew up on Twitter Yeah, and got like 1,600 likes or something and yeah. I was just like, what? This has never happened to me before. Yeah. But, um, you know, obviously it, it really resonated with people, which, mm. is, which is great, but I also sort of think, oh, man. You know, we're all doing it and we all feel like we're alone. It's like going back to what I was saying, you know, when I first had my first child and I felt like I was completely alone. Mm. But writing this this tweet and, and seeing how it impacted on other women who were writer mothers um, made me realise that, you know, there's a hell of a lot of us out there all alone. <laughs> yeah, feeling isolated, feeling alone. Yeah. 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 It turns out there are at least 1,600. At least 1,600. <laughs> Um, can I ask you to, to read some of your tweets for us? Sure. I, I think it would be great for you to. Okay. I don't think you can retweet a podcast no, quite the same I, way, but I think people <laughs> will appreciate hearing it. I gave this one a hashtag too. Good. This, so this is like hashtag writing mother hustle. Being a writer who is also a mother means coming into the industry later in life, never being able to apply for or accept residencies, late night or early morning writing time, frequently both. Working in the car on your laptop while your kids do extracurricular sport. Many of your best ideas come while you're doing the dishes, folding laundry or driving your kids to stuff. If you're a YA or children's writer, getting a cool new idea and asking your kids if they'd go for it. Hoping for the best. <laughs> uh, this, one, this one hit a lot of nerves. Housework is the enemy. Multitasking. Cleaning the bath while you're in the shower. <laughs> having to justify to your friends why you persist in this low-paying creative work when your family has needs having to justify to your partner why you persist in this low-paying creative work when your family has needs mm. considering the marketability of every damn thing you write because your family has needs mm -hmm. if you're a YA children's writer eavesdropping on your children to get dialogue right <laughs> Um, your writing days are bookended by school drop-off and pick-up. Rage response to the question, what's for dinner? Never really giving a shit what's for dinner. <laughs> if you're a YA or children's writer asking your kids about current slang, realising that nobody in your mother's group gives a shit about your new plot bunny, <laughs> uh, being the book wreck queen in your house, always, never getting to watch TV. Oh, that one's a killer. That's a killer. Oh. Feeling guilty about your messy house, always. Seriously, there is no dinner. Dinner does not <laughs> exist. Allow me to introduce you to our lovely toaster. Throwing on clothes and makeup for book gigs in five minutes flat, often in the car. Yep. Pasta is your friend. Feeling guilty about giving your kids screen time while you write. Forgetting you have kids when you are when you're on a deadline, being a workaholic, loving your partner who puts up with all of this shit, trying to figure out an adequate way to say thank you to your partner and kids in the acknowledgments, spinning plates always. Time is your most valuable asset. Do not fuck with my time. I will hurt you. <laughs> Declining social engagements because you could spend that time writing or even sleeping. 
Maintaining a healthy balance between looking glam at events and looking like a bin fire at home. <laughs> Kids are not allowed to play games on your laptop ever. Seriously, fuck housework. Talking over plot problems with your kids because they're a captive audience while you're driving them places and sometimes they have good ideas. Working holidays, your family goes to the beach while you write and you feel guilty or elated and elated about this. Your family standing around awkwardly at book launches, working your deadlines around school term and holidays. Why are deadlines always at the end of school holidays? What the fuck? Being super organised or fudging the impression of being super organised. Your family gets excited when you show them a real live book and you love them for it. Your kids will get ongoing royalties. You will continue to be useful after your death. <laughs> I bet that's the one they're most excited about. <laughs> Feeling proud that you've written something that your kids or grandkids might one day read. Feeling tired pretty much all the time. Feeling like it's worth it. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. I like that you finished on a positive note. <laughs> you were like, listen, this is how it is. There's hope. But there is hope, hope. at yeah. the end. <laughs> yeah, that's so great. Um, one of the things that struck me about that list is um, that oh, just the, the kicker where you talk about having to justify to people uh, why you keep doing this thing oh, yeah. that actually, you know, is like the low-paying, <gasps> right. hard choice. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it strikes me that, you know, men can be creative geniuses or, you know, it's really important for men to have outlets in those ways. But with women, we do often feel like we have to justify it as, is it is it going to bring in money? Is it going to benefit yeah. my family? Like actually carving out that space is such a political it is, in itself. It is a political act. It's also, you know, really important. I guess I'm always trying to aim for balance, mm. you know, and my partner is also a teacher. Yeah. And I'm a teacher. And at various times, you know, we've each held the same job. You know, in some cases we've job shared one job. Yeah. So we always have kind of tried to juggle child-rearing, parenting duties, house duties and work. So we, we're always kind of aiming for parity. Mm. You know, that's kind of what we've always aimed for. Mm. And so writing work is, is hard because the, the wage parity is, no, is nowhere near <laughs> yep. the level of a normal job. Yeah. You know, I'm working, I'm working three jobs. You know, I'm working my teaching job, I'm working my writing job and I'm working any other um, speaking events that I can mm. take on in order to level out the amount of money that I'm earning from writing which is, you know, like way down here. Yeah. And, yeah, so it's always a bit of a, it's always a, bit of a juggle. I don't know when that's going to change. So mm. we just kind of keep bumbling along. Yeah. And there's, there's always going to be a bit of push and pull that, yeah, at, this is the best that we can do at this stage. Yeah. And uh, obviously that list struck home, as you say, for quite a few people who <laughs> shared it, liked it. Um, and I think that's because it is really honest too. You know, like I said, I don't like that question or the idea about how can you have it all. That yeah. list is really talking about the constant renegotiation with yourself, let alone with anyone else. Always. That you have to do just to keep everything, like you said, the, the plates spinning in the air. Yeah, yeah. It's that in itself like that. is its own job. It's a busy life. Yeah, I can yeah. imagine. 
Um, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you for having um, it's me. Been it's great. been lovely to talk. Yeah, it's been really good to hear your insights. I know um, there'll be plenty of other people who are nodding their head along as we've been talking. It'll be good. And tell us your Twitter handle so that people can uh, <laughs> can go and check out your. I am. Your I am just normal me. I am just at Ellie Marnie. So oh, and I nearly forgot. The last question I would like to ask people is whether you have any stealth recommendations um, for, I reckon you're going to go with books on this one, um, <laughs> for books or, or movies or any kind of, um, you know, kind of cultural cachet music that you think is a good way to kind of embed really positive stories about women and feminism, not necessarily as its core message, but like those really oh, great sleeper things. Those like, really great things. Here you go, let's watch this movie together. Oh, who knew it was going to be? <laughs> Great. I will never forget going. I mean, this is going to sound really lame, but I I never forget going to see Wonder Woman with my two youngest sons. Uh, yeah. Um. So that was last year. So yep. they were like nine and eleven, and they were so into it. Like they were just like, and for them, it completely normalized the idea of female superhero and that a woman could do all these amazing things. And and that scene where she, like, walks up the ladder and goes out into no man's land and they were like, yeah, Wonder Woman, and I was just sitting there and I was just about crying because yeah. it was just like I feel like I've waited for this kind of representation on the big screen for my kids for so long, Yeah, <laughs> you know, for them to normalise that a woman can be amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> shouldn't, shouldn't be too hard. But, no. yeah, we waited a long time for it to happen. It sure happened. We put up with movies like Batgirl. Together. Oh, God. <laughs> Far it, was out. Right. it was about time. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I know I know that's going to sound really funny, but Wonder Woman. No, and also, look, I just throw so many books at my kids mm. that they probably don't notice that the ratio of female authors to male authors is like about 80-20. <laughs> And YA is, has a lot of great female writers. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, now they they kind of look at the author but they're really just really caught up in the story. Yeah. So for them it's not a matter of board books and girl books anymore. It's just, oh, these are awesome books. Yeah. So I just keep throwing, you know, YA and middle grade at them and, yeah, they're starting. As long as it's a, a fun protagonist. As long as it's a great like... protagonist, I don't care who it is. Yeah. And they don't get into this gendered reading stuff, which is really yeah. good. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good one not to have to struggle with. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad about that. Brilliant. All right. Thanks, Ellie. Thanks, Lisa. This episode was presented and produced by me, Lisa Singleton-Norton, and edited by Tim Singleton-Norton. My thanks to Ellie for finding the time to have such a generous discussion. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or in all the usual places. You can also rate it on iTunes if you enjoyed this episode and would like to help other people find it. To sign up to the accompanying tiny letter emails to the podcast, visit This Is What Raising a Feminist Looks Like on Facebook, where you can learn more about my guests and other information about feminism and parenting.